The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Mike Aykroyd. Mike left San Antonio, Texas to attend the military academy. Mike graduated as an economics and computer science major and served as an armor officer in Kuwait and Iraq. Mike was selected to serve as the rear detachment commander for his tank battalion when his unit was tapped to deploy for a second tour nine months after their first. As the rear detachment commander, Mike was critical in creating systems to support communications and care between service members and their families at home and overseas. Mike was successful in this effort through his ability to enlist talent, communicate effectively, and navigate the services available at his duty station. When Mike left the military at the end of his service obligation, he would apply those skills and his degree in future civilian jobs. Mike has served in increasing positions of influence at USAA, Disney, and Amazon, ushering in quantitative improvements to their business practices. Mike's success has been based on his hard-earned skills in facing adversity and solving complex problems. This is his story. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Alpha Coffee. Alpha Coffee is a veteran and military spouse co-owned and operated company dedicated to offering their customers amazing coffee, promoting the warrior lifestyle, and providing the highest levels of service and giving back to our military and veterans. I've been drinking their Warrior Select and Double Barrel Black Brews for the past two weeks, and there is nothing more comforting on a cold gray day in the Pacific Northwest or at West Point than a smooth cup of dark coffee. Please support this company, and when you purchase either on Amazon or on their website, alpha.coffee.com, use our promo code through the gray. Thank you. Welcome to Through the Gray. I'm with Mike Aykroyd. How are you doing today, Mike? Good. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, so first question, why West Point? Uh, kind of uh, eventually ended up on West Point uh, as my choice of college. I had wanted to be, uh, like most kids, an astronaut. Uh, when I grew up and folks in middle school told me, hey, you should go fly planes, um, maybe go to the Air Force Academy. So I thought, great, go to the Air Force Academy. And between eighth and ninth grade, uh, there was kind of like a, an evening where all the different clubs and stuff like that uh, talked about what they did. So you have like the, the band and the football team, the cross country and JROTC showed up there and they were spinning their rifles and you had uh, their senior army instructor come out and talk about, hey, we we go out in the woods and you learn how to use a map and a compass. We call it orienteering. You learn how to repel over a Camp Bullis. And you know, I'm from San Antonio, uh, military city, USA. So it just seemed really cool to me. Uh, my parents weren't super thrilled. Uh, they had just spent quite a bit of money uh, to, to buy me a, tr a new trombone. I was in the band and we, we were of uh, modest, very modest means. So that was a big deal for them. And for me, I think they just wanted me to, hey, go make an honest living. Don't worry about college. It's not that big of a deal. Um, it's just 
you're being too aspirational. Is like I really got that feel uh, from them. But I thought like, hey, I'll, I'll go to, I'll go do JROTC, see how I like it, and I'll go to the Air Force Academy. And I looked out, and because again, my parents really stretched themselves financially to be able to put us in a good school district. Um, where had this really great high school, and this high school was known for producing, I didn't know it at the time, but a ton of academy nominations at a point. And you know, so much to the point that in my, I have my high school graduating class of maybe 600 or so, and of those, you know, maybe 25 or 30 were in the JROTC unit, and nearly all of them either service academy appointments or full rides to Army, Navy, ROTC. And you know, in my class, I had you know, one, ROTC, JROTC classmate went to Air Force, another went to the Navy, and two went to West Point, including me. The other was Ashton Fine, um, who later ended up being uh, in my B squad somehow, <laughs> just very random. So, uh, but it, like sophomore, junior year um, in high school, had a whole bunch of recruiters come in. And I said, hey, want to be a pilot? And he said, hey, do you have, um, do you wear corrective lenses? Yes, I wear contacts. He said, can't be a pilot, no go. And I said, well, what if I got LASIK surgery? A no go. So my senior army instructor saw me pretty bummed that, okay, well, if I can't be a pilot, why go to the Air Force Academy? And he told me that, well, why would you want to go there anyway? Over at the Air Force Academy, you have a whole bunch of statues of planes. Over at West Point, you have statues of some of the greatest military leaders in the world. Well, that <laughs> he, he definitely started selling me on that. And you know, over time, started talking to folks and kind of the rest is history. So growing up um, and kind of focusing on the military, but really more so NASA, that transition to wanting to be a, an army leader and going to West Point. When did um, when did that really hook into you before you get before you get I, there? I, I think I think just in being in the JROTC unit because you had so many people there that even if they didn't get an ROTC scholarship, hey, I'm going to go in the Marines. I want to serve my country. And again, the senior army instructor, he was this you know, crazy ex-enlisted Marine in Vietnam, then he went to college and you know, became um, a pilot uh, in Vietnam, shot down multiple times, multiple silver stars, total war hero. And just being around like that pseudo military culture and that just really ingrained this idea of service. And it's like, I don't know if I want to do 20 years or five years or whatever it is, but I know I want to serve my country. I, I want to do that. Um, not a lot of service in my family. Grandparents, World War II, uh, uncle um, was in the army, enlisted uh, during the Vietnam era, but you know, parents uh, weren't in the military. So it was still kind of a foreign concept uh, at the time, but it was really just going in. Do you know what? I'm just going to, it's a free education. It's a great education, good school, and I get to do the right thing uh, by serving my country. Don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to do my time. So you report to West Point. Um... And you do have your battle buddy for JRTC. Was it a culture shock or is it, did it match what your expectations were? Uh, like it, it was a bit of a culture shock still. Uh, it was cool because, hey, I knew how to, you know, spit shine my shoes, polish, uh, like where you'd press my uniform, do all that good stuff. I knew how to march, do things with a rifle, you know, shoot rifles, knew how to repel. Like, so I knew how to orienteer, like all that stuff was check the box. Uh, so that made it easy. Um, in some aspects, at least during Beast. However, there still was a little bit of a culture shock, and and this was over Beast and same same thing probably first couple of years that I just didn't get it um, because it was very frustrating to me that how could you be perfect at, at all these different things all at once? Because 
I know you, you, you heard all this. Everybody heard this. Hey, you didn't shine your shoes. You just killed your platoon. Like, oh, come on, that's, that's just being, being silly. Um, but of course, now later on, you recognize it really is about attention to detail. But how can you have that level of attention to detail with your uniform, your knowledge, your duties? How do you crush academics? How do you, you know, max out your PT score? How do you do great in gymnastics and swimming? You know, for me, all of a sudden, just this sucks being mediocre at everything. And, and I know everybody went through this, but it just felt so inadequate. And it's like that even whenever I applied to West Point, I still waited until the bitter end where Ashton was the first person in our class to be accepted. I was probably one of the last because I thought that, hey, if I just wait until the absolute deadline to apply, I'll leave it up to fate that if it was meant for me to go there, I'll get in. Um, so just this feelings of inadequacy. So I really didn't train a lot in terms of running. I had maybe run like a mile and a half before I even showed up there. So falling out of runs during Beast, I couldn't swim. Good grades in high school, but ultimately, how do you compete against you know the Seth Bodners <laughs> of the world? Uh, it's like, you just can't. And, and, and then it extends, it's like, that. okay, well, you start doing intramurals where, like, okay, well, go do wrestling. I've never wrestled before. You're going up against the state champion. Get up in the boxing ring. Well, it's against a Golden Glove boxer. Like, it's just like, what, like, what am I doing here? I'm not going to win. You're up against the most talented people in the world. But, you know, ultimately for me, like, the, it kind of took a lot of beating into me that it's not necessarily about trying to win or be the best. Yes, try to improve yourself. But it's like, again, take advantage of being with some of the most talented people in the world. You know, ask them, like, how do I get better at wrestling? How do I get better at swimming? How do I get better at these things? And yeah, you're, you may not be able to ever beat them, but at least you'll improve yourself to the point that you're pretty, pretty crafty um, amongst all these different things. You become a renaissance person, which I think is great. Now, did you, when you came to West Point, were you in that top 1%, top 2%? Were you used to being the best of the best academically, physically? Um, with your classmates? Academically, yeah. Um, definitely up at the top. Physically, I spent most of my time you know, in JROTC, didn't do uh, track or I was a smaller guy, so you know, football was out of the question. So it, it was physical. I was strong, um, but not necessarily an athlete. Um, physical wise, or sorry, uh, academic wise, like, yes, I'm used to being, you know, not having to work at all and still get straight A's. Uh, so that just, again, knocks it down very fast when you have to, you know, try to understand this concept known as discrete dynamical systems while writing a 20 page paper on philosophy and read a couple hundred pages on the history of the world. It really gets to like, hey, you can't do this by yourself. That you know, remember so many like our I think our first two term and exam weeks where we're in a room, all the folks that are in uh, history of the world, and we're just writing out the history of the world and all the possible things that could be on our prompt <laughs> on the wall. Uh, <laughs> and just like, like, okay, we know we're going to be asked some crazy question, like some prompt, hey, going from the dawn of time to the Treaty of uh, Westphalia, explain X and write 30 pages on it in, in five hours. Um, so we just had to work together to be able to do this. So it's, I think over time, just recognized, you know, actually very quickly, like how important the, the brotherhood and the fellowship of our classmates were uh, to be able to get through there. Even if you could just uh, go middle of the road and um, try, but you're just not really getting the best out of it unless you're working together with everyone. Now, did the the lack of that like pedestal early in high school, uh, when that ego shock come, came, was it easier to reach out for help? Because some, some classmates, um, it took longer. 
because they didn't want to admit that I'm struggling. They didn't want to admit that I'm not good at X, Y, or Z. And so they just kind of buckled down and was like, I can do this internal. Did the, the it, lack that ego drop um, or the, the shorter fall, did that help you? Uh, I, I think it came in stages because there are certain things that I knew that I, I'm gone if I don't get help on that. Um, so I'll reach out here, but then other things, I'll just buckle down like, okay, rock swimmer, I am just not getting this at all. And honestly, I still sucked until I, I did, you know, an Ironman triathlon, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, <laughs> I still sucked at swimming. But it was one of those things that I waited until I was put up against a wall to be able to do this. And, and even throughout my life, I think it's still gotten, ego just still gets in the way. And I think it's gotten to the point like it, I can see past that now and, and ask for help sooner. But it really did take time to start breaking down those barriers and saying that, hey, folks, <laughs> like this, this isn't going well here. And I'm going to need, I'm not going to be able to do this without help. At what point um, at West Point, did you know you were going to make it through? Um, after the end of yuck year. Uh, because then, like, once we got into junior year, um, I had, I guess, a little bit of a moral assistance. Uh, my brother uh, got into the academy, and he came in, and he was a plebe, and I was a beast cadre when it was his first uh, section of beast. So kind of getting to, to see him around and, you know, help coach him, you know, a bit on the side, knowing that, like, yep, I got to do this because he's got to do this. Uh, also, the same point in time that had just such a good group of folks. I was in F3 before, and a lot of them went over to to the new company, uh, C1, uh, that I moved to. Uh, so we all just clicked. We worked well together, um, knowing that we weren't going to we weren't going to let each other down uh, getting through this. And and ultimately, it just started becoming a decision of that. Okay, well, what next? Uh, what do we do after after this experience? Like, what does you know, CTLT look like? What what branch do we do? What what post? How do we optimize for that? But yeah knew by your beginning of junior year that yeah gonna happen your parents you drug your little brother forward to to the academy what was your mom and dad's reaction to that <laughs> <laughs> they were not happy whenever uh, i i think they're more sad like that okay you're leaving town um you're gonna go do this and and i think it was probably also the same feelings as well but then also by that point in time that they had seen that okay i had already been there for two years it was a, a big point of pride uh that hey got two kids, both kids going to West Point. We must have done something right <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that if we were able to, to, to you know, help them you know, get there. Branch choice. Yeah. What drove that for you? So had a good time at Buckner. Um, I kind of thought about infantry. Uh, my battle buddy was uh, Max Adams uh, through Buckner. So, so that, was a, that, was, that was a great time. Uh, but then, you know, of course, there's a little bit of cynicism comes in and whenever CTLT happened, I somehow got selected for finance at Fort Stewart. And I thought, yes, this is the, this is the, the killer sham job. It's going to be a great summer uh, of CTLT uh, until my TAC officer and TAC NCO pulled me in and they said, what the hell? Uh, why'd you even, <laughs> how and why did this even happen? Um, I said, I don't know. I'm going to have, I'm going to make the most of it. And they said, no, you're not. You're, you're going to go armor and you're going to Riley. Um, <laughs> And I was pretty frustrated. <laughs> it's like you're you're gonna be you're gonna make a, a great combat arms officer. It's like I thought, no, I'm not. Like, uh, so I, I go and do CTLT out there, and I had a blast. Great people. I was in, I think it was one three four. I was in first ID, and great people. It was a good balance of, hey, there's you know, 
we do some army stuff. We go out to the field. We do some training. We go to the range. But then also, it's not 75th Ranger Regiment 24-7. Um, so it's like a good balance of army, uh, not army. And, and I enjoyed that. So whenever it came time to branch and post, I was 100% armor because the people, the camaraderie, just going out there on the tanks, just fell in love with, with the beast and just wanted to do that. And so I was fortunate to, hey, first choice for both. <laughs> it, it's unique that Fort Riley at the time, there's only two brigades there. So they had a, mm-hmm. a training area big enough for probably three or four brigades. Um, but you also have Kansas state just outside the door and Manhattan. Yep. So as a JMO, it's not that bad of a place because the ability to train and the ability to kind of hang out with a, a college age demographic, it's definitely there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you just, you can go out there, you can buy a house, you can rent an apartment. It's not that bad of a drive. Uh, you really do feel like, okay, I have my army life during the day. I have my civilian life in the afternoons and the evenings. And that's what I liked about it during CTLT. And that's you know, what I, why I branched there. But, you know, ultimately that, that wasn't exactly what happened whenever I got there. So fast forward to, to graduation um, yeah. in AOB. What are the big yeah. takeaways from, from that time? Really enjoyed AOB. Uh, was with Adam Latham, uh, Ben McLaughlin, a couple other folks. Uh, we were one of the early classes, um, late June. Uh, we had this Marine captain who was uh, running us, and he made sure that we were ready. Really enjoyed it, learned a lot. Uh, and, and of course, 9-11 occurs while we're at AOB. And for tankers, it, it was a little bit different just because, like, well, we're not infantry. Afghanistan's a, an infantry-style place um, because after 9-11, started talking about going to Afghanistan. I think there was even some sign-ups to say, hey, if you want to repost to Drum, because likely Drum will be the first ones to, uh, to go in, you can sign up. We'll only be taking a couple sign-ups for there. But then started talking videos, they started showing videos, tactics, uh, during like the last week or two uh, while we were there and say, hey, this is what happened to the Russians in Afghanistan when they brought in tanks and really just saying not good. Uh, so the chances for you to go into Afghanistan, again, this was just at the time, probably pretty slim. So may not be your fight. And if it is, if you do go over there, you're not going to be fighting on tanks. You'll be doing some type of dismounted operation just because tanks and Afghanistan mountains don't gel. So it was it was a bit of a shift because we're all gun ho about typical large-scale amount of maneuver warfare, getting the training there, and then all of a sudden, 9-11 happens, and it's like, okay, well, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a need for tanks? Are we just going to miss this war in Afghanistan? Are we just going to be kind of armor officers left behind and not not get to, you know, quote-unquote, go to the big show, um, not have that opportunity like in Desert Storm? Uh, so it was, for me, it was kind of some open questions, and it, it was a bit of a unique experience, you know, getting out there, finishing up, and then getting ready to head to the first post. How long did you have those questions? Uh, you show up to Fort Riley, and then what do you find out? Uh, show up to Riley. My battalion commander was, uh, I think it was like an 82 grad of uh, the academy. And as you show up there, of course, you already had the queue of lieutenants uh, waiting for a platoon. Uh, show up there with a couple other new lieutenants. And he sees I'm West Point grad and says, boom, Mike, you're first in the hopper for a platoon. It's like, sweet, I get to cut the line. <laughs> um, and he's like, you're going to be uh, Alpha Company 113 Armor. Um, that platoon leader, he's moving out to the Brigade Recon team. He's also a West Point guy. Um, Brett Long, I think he's 0 And guess what? They're going to Kuwait. It's going to be awesome for you. And it's like, oh, 
not, not exactly what I thought, but cool. Um, so show up there to my unit. All right, well, you got to get UCOF trained, got to go to Gunnery, got to go to uh, FTX, got to go to Calfex, got to go to National Training Center, uh, got to get all trained up, uh, and then boom, head out to, to Kuwait. So we were, because it was Riley just with the, the two brigades, one company, uh, my company Alpha from 113 and another company from 270 Armor were attached to the 3rd Infantry Division, uh, a brigade from there. And that brigade rotated midway through this tour uh, in Kuwait. And we're in the middle of Kuwait, and you know, folks have been out there. It was, I think we're in New York Cabal um, whenever we were there, but it was still before way you know, the big buildup, so there really wasn't much out there. It was like New York, Virginia, and New Jersey. And getting out there in Kuwait, it sucked initially. It's like, oh, man, it's 120 degrees. It's just brutal living conditions. Got a cot in a tent. Um, living out here on MREs for six months, not going to be fun. But it was. like. I ended up just having the biggest blast um, getting out there doing training and first couple of weeks practicing uh, what we call cabal breakout where you hurry up, you get an alert in the middle of the night, you throw all your stuff on a tank and you drive down to Kuwait City and you set up a formation, you know, just to kind of practice what if Iraq was to break the berm and start attacking Kuwait again. So doing that, going out, doing Wi-Fi exercises, doing things you'd never do like at Fort Riley in terms of the scale of the operations. Uh, and just getting so good at your craft. And I loved it. Getting to get real close with the guys. Um, i got to give a plug to uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, my platoon sergeant, he wrote to the coach, or uh, Dick Vermeil at the time, and said, hey, we're out here in Kuwait, want to sponsor us? And you know, sure enough, you know, that team, they sent us, you know, signed footballs, cards, you know, pictures, like uh, all types of goodies. Like every month they sent us a big box and whenever we got back, you know, they invited us to a, to a home game, um, sat on the sidelines. It was great. Um, so I have nothing but love for, for them. Uh, but yeah, just got so close to, to the team and we just built up like this really cohesive organization. And when we were getting ready to leave, the um, two or three star general that was down there uh, kind of brought us into the officers into this briefing room and said, hey, don't know when this is happening, but it's going to happen soon. But we're going to invade Iraq. You know, there's no questions about this because Saddam had been you know, rattling the proverbial saber since August and several months before. It's like, hey, it's going to go down and this brigade is the most trained, so you're going to get called back. Could be a, a couple weeks, could be a couple months. And sure enough, you know, that's what ended up happening, that you know, we got back um, two weeks of leave and then immediately went to you know, Ukoft, Gunnery, Calfex, NTC, and did the whole thing again and then redeployed. And just for context, I was in Charlie Company 113 while you were in Alpha Company. I was a month behind you. I was the next AOB course uh, behind you. And we were back in the States training up, and that whole brigade uh, was chomping at the bit to get forward to support the fight. And then we see Alpha Company come back, recock, and then go. Uh, and we're like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it, being at Knox and the the big fight's going to happen and third ID is going to do everything and 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 these dudes like two doors down in our in our battalion area these dudes in Alpha Company are going to see the 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 real the real deal and and we'll see it on TV. <laughs> what was what was that like? Was it surreal um to spend so much time prepping, come back and then go back and know what you're walking into? 
It was because even when we were in Kuwait, we were already getting scud attacks. Like, so we were used to this, um, it, this kind of war zone posture. And when we left Kuwait, one of the things you had to do was we had to do like this full disassembly of our tank and clean everything, you know, get it completely spit shined. And spent three weeks doing this and got intimately familiar with like how a tank works and how it's built, putting it back together. And, you know, crazy enough, got back to Kuwait, fell in on the exact same equipment. Uh, so it's like, oh yeah, great. I had the same tank with the same busted solenoid for my 50 cal. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'll just re-jury rig that again. <laughs> so hopefully that's good to go. Um, but yeah, it, it was very surreal. And just thinking that like when I, when I left, like, oh, this was enjoyable, but don't want to do this anytime soon uh, because it's hot. It sucks. But then it, it was very surreal. Like again, getting back on that same um, commercial unmarked jet flying into the middle of the night and like, boom, then you're on the ground, you know, getting everything all ready to go. Um, so it was, it was very surreal, but for me, the most surreal things were then running into classmates in Baghdad, um, where we're out there and we initially get, um, settled into like what used to be, uh, Saddam Hussein's kind of like their CIA headquarters, their ministry of intelligence. So we have our battalion headquarters, our task force headquarters there. You know, my company, Alpha Company, we broke off and we got cross attached to the 82nd, uh, a battalion for there. And we're like in another area and where we're going to go uh, conduct patrols. And one night, uh, or one evening, we're told, hey, we're going to start working with um, the infantry. We're going to take two tanks and then have like a couple maybe a team of infantry folks on each tank, sit them on the back, and we're going to go on a patrol uh, so we can kind of get a better feel, lay of the land uh, in the middle of the night because these areas were very congested and you can't really take the tank. You can only take the tank so far. So it really helped to be, you know, get boots on the ground. And sure enough, I hear my name getting called. Hey, Slackroyd, get down there. Um, <laughs> and it's like, like, who's calling me Slackroyd? Like, I haven't heard that since West Point. Um, so I, I get down there and it's Matt Rasmussen. And it's just, again, super surreal that he's right on the other side and just like this other you know, burned down building. Uh, his platoon's over there, my platoon's over here. And just bumping into him like that and getting to work with him. And you know, like another example, just going out on a convoy security uh, to, to buy up to the Baghdad airport. And just boom, getting out of the the Humvee and parked right next to me, Chris Hetz and a classmate and company mate. And how on earth did this happen? And he's talking to me about how like, oh yeah, like I've been working with Matt Adamczyk. Um, I've been working side by side with him. He, he's around here somewhere. And that was just so surreal that like we were all together, went all around the world, and now we just all somehow ended up in Baghdad. <laughs> was that good or was that bad? It was in some weird way. It was really comforting uh, to know that, like, hey, I, I know these are good people, and that if I need to you know, call somebody over to my left flank, you, you sometimes know that. Okay, well, I, I know that I trust them to do their job, but like, if I just also happen to know, like, oh yeah, like we lifted weights together all the time, <laughs> like that, like yeah, I could trust that guy. Um, so it just added just this extra bit of comfort um, during the rotation, knowing that okay. Everybody's here. We're, we're grinding this out, doing it together. Because again, as as a reminder, this was a weird time. Because later on, of course, you had these rotations. It was OIF two, three, four. This at the time was that you know we got there and we didn't know how long we were going to be there. So 
like the third infantry division. They were there for, you know, a couple months. I think they left in August. We thought that, okay, this is, we're tanks. We're going to do uh, Desert Storm 2. We'll be back in 100 days. That's that. And then, you know, first armor division shows up and we fall underneath our, our parent flag. And then, hey, we'll be home by Thanksgiving. We'll be home by Christmas. We'll be home by the new year. And then like this time drags on. So it's just a little bit of comfort knowing that, hey, we're still all in this together. Um, we'll, we'll make it through. What moments uh, of that first deployment, that first year, stick out the most? Besides me and the classmates, um, yeah. what memories stick out? <sighs> there was... There was a lot of good, a lot of bad. I think there was some just really unique things that as a platoon leader early on that nobody thought about. Um, and it was really cool to have that opportunity to to innovate in some weird way where you get out there and like, okay, well, we're no longer just you know shooting the bad guys. We're, we're getting out and people are waving, smiling, and there's just, just this weird culture shock and just seeing extreme poverty talking to people like there's one day that i'm going out there and i'm on a security detail for for a hospital just to make sure you know, nobody blows up a hospital or attacks a hospital just to maintain key infrastructure and somebody comes up to me you know with their baby and you know hands me the baby and is talking to me and said like hey i didn't believe that americans really existed i thought this was just some propaganda to keep people in line like I want my baby to meet you. You're the, yeah, you're, you're, the, you're the, like, I want my baby to meet you, the first American he's met. It's like just crazy stuff like that. It's like, oh, like this is, this is surreal. Then like, just, okay, well, this person fortunately is able to speak to me in broken English. But then there's other times, like, how do you communicate at a traffic control point? Like, well, we're starting up traffic control points and instituting curfews. Like, well, like, well, how do you tell people? Like, I don't speak Arabic. Like there's only a handful of people in our class that took that. Uh, and I took Russian. So that doesn't help. Um, so, you know, how do you do things about like, okay, try to find somebody that's trustworthy, pay them uh, in some currency. And then from there, like have them write out cue cards for you to like, just hold up at traffic control points to, to be able to communicate with people. Um, just really weird things like that. And, and even, you know, like, like really bad things too. Um, it just one instance, and it's just one of those things that kind of comes back to West Point of the, you didn't shine your shoes. Uh, so you just you killed your platoon. Didn't do that, but somebody just, I, I should have thought about like, hey, I probably should have had a process for burning stuff in a, in a burn pit. Um, because at that time we, you know, we were going to the restroom in a 55 gallon drum that was cut in half. And like, yeah, I'm sure like that that happened for quite a while before they got the portageons out there. Um, but then we would use as tankers, we'd use JP8 jet fuel, pour it in there, light a fire, and then we'd start with a with rebar, and you know, we'd burn our shit. And had my gunner out there, and he this was the middle of the day. Um, we had been gotten off the morning patrol, and that was his job. And next thing you know, he's screaming, dust starts coming up, and what's going on? Because we're in this big sandy area. Uh, where our, you know, kind of where we're, we're at, and people think, oh, he's just getting rolled up. People are just wrestling. Um, it's just, just that guy. He's just used to it. Um, but then realize that wait a minute, that something's going wrong. So we go over to him, and he's on fire, but you just can't see the flame because JP8 burns invisible. And he didn't realize that like there was still a little bit of a flame going underneath the stool, and he put JP8 on top of it, and it ignited. Um, so he got second and third degree burns all over his body, had to be, you know, medevaced out. Um, 
So it's just like, shoot, like we were good through all this stuff thick and thin. And then we get there like maybe June by this, by when this happened and just something stupid, like burning shit takes this guy out. Uh, granted he lived, but, but it's still years of rehab um, to do this. And just all of a sudden it's like, oh, really every little thing matters. And there's grave consequences. Like had it not already been, you know, knocked in my teeth from, you know, OBC, from the Kuwait rotation, from, you know, the early days of the Iraq war. But now it's like, yeah, it just keeps hitting home. So those are probably like the, the biggest things of the, of the first rotation. One of my uh, tank commanders was driving. Uh, we were in a similar area, the Katamiya, Atamiya area on the yep, yep. Uh, north of Baghdad International Airport, but west of the, the river. And um, he made a pivot turn and hit a guardrail. And it flung up and, and tagged him in his right arm, almost broke his arm. And it's like you said, it's those little tiny things that you wouldn't think you'd have to worry about your tank hitting a guardrail and this multi-hundred pound piece of steel striking your soldier. Um, you just don't think about it. Yeah. So it's just like you you always have to be, you you can't plan for everything, but you have to do your best to, to, to plan for everything. And those little things that make sense in training, like making sure your name tag defilade. So you don't get rolled. Well, that same oh, yeah. guidance for name tag definitely defilade for rolling for, for rib damage also <laughs> apparently works for snipers and it works for guardrails trying to kill you. Um, and it's those little discipline things that matter. Completely agree. So you, you hear the word that you're coming back, you're redeploying. Um, talk me through that process and, and what it was like after that first year or, and really an extended period of time, if you include the train up and then the ground war. Yeah, so we were pretty excited, but like there was it just seemed like a lot of misfires trying to to get back because like okay, well, we're going to leave out of Baghdad. No, we're going to leave out of uh, you know, somewhere else, uh, and like all these different things. It just seemed like it took three weeks for us to to eventually be able to to rotate back um, to get on a flight. But when we did, we were you know of course super excited. Two weeks off, come back, and then from there, stop loss. And at the time, I was the I had. Uh, pivoted to being the adjutant, the battalion S1 and being in charge of personnel at that point, like it got a little bit tough because now all of a sudden, like, Oh shoot, we're stop loss. We have people that, um, were supposed to retire. Like we had an E5 that was hit his 15 year mark. And of course at E5 at 15, you're supposed to go out, but he was sent with the headquarters, uh, platoon with us to Kuwait and then was stop lost into Iraq and now is stop lost again. So he's going to, you know, He's going to get close to 20 and he's not even supposed to be in the army. Like there's these weird situations like that. Like we have all this equipment, this deadline. Um, it, it just got really tough. You start hearing that stop loss and now all of a sudden you got to go back to gunnery. You got to go back to the National Training Center because I think within a month and a half, like you know, I'm doing a staff ride uh, back up in the National Training Center and just people, it, all of a sudden it shifted from, okay, we're doing this combat. It's really about wartime leadership. Now it, beca it became this different style of leadership that just wasn't quite ready for. Um, because as you start getting ready and training up, people start saying, hey, I really don't want to go. I'm not feeling this. Like I'm, like, I'm not mentally right. People are drinking more. People are partying more, doing stupid things, uh, going out to the clubs and getting in fights, uh, starting to do drugs, people going AWOL. And that you, at the time, mental health really wasn't a thing. It's like, hey, you're either good to go or you're a malingerer. Like that's kind of the, the approach was at the time. 
And looking back, that's not healthy, but that, that's just the way it was. And you know, having like a nine month turnaround time. And then as we got ready to deploy, recognized that we had so many people unfit, um, I was selected to be the rear detachment commander for you know, 113. And that was probably the, the hardest assignment that I had in the army and still probably to date. Having to deal with um, those soldiers that I knew were my friends, like my buddies, my battle buddies in Kuwait, in Iraq, and people that were like, we had an E6, um, was fast tracking to E7 and got popped for cocaine you know, a couple of weeks before, um, before OIF3. And then so I had to keep them in the rear D, had to bust them, go through the you know, whole uh, chapter process and get them ready to, to redeploy. But then when getting ready to redeploy, he comes up again, hot for, for cocaine. So having to, you know, read him his rights for the, like doing that for the first time and then trying to arrest him. And, and he's, you know, this one incident where we're at the headquarters of the battalion and we're trying to arrest him and he tries to bang his head through the, through the glass door. Um, I don't know what his intent was, um, but just trying to arrest him and make sure that we don't accidentally give him a heart attack because he's high on Coke, most likely had you know, experiences like that. You know, this is 2005 had no idea what meth was uh, and having to deal with soldiers that are, you know, hooked on meth and like trying to understand like, well, why is this guy scratching his face off? We have another spouse that was, you know, was dealing meth out of, out of, uh, out of quarters and had to evict her from quarters and another spouse that, you know, attempted to commit suicide. And like, there's just all these things uh, that you're just not like, I was like, yeah, the army didn't equip me for this. Uh, so these are some serious leadership challenges. And, and it's really, it gets down to people challenges. And, and like, this isn't just about uh, making sure that somebody's trained and, hey, they've, they know how to don their mop suit. They know they're qualified on their weapon. They know uh, infantry tactics and they're, they're good to go. Like, this is like their 360 life. You need to make sure that they're 100% mentally, physically, morally squared away. And because the, the worst thing is that, okay, well, what if we do deploy them and what if they get injured? Because then having to deal with the other side of that, where sadly enough, it got to, like, we just got good at knowing what to do when there's a KIA and having to, like, what's the plan? Okay, we're going to notify a local poli uh, police department, try to get, figure out where they're at, send somebody to go, um, you know, scope out their house, figure out if they're there, follow them if they're going in and out. Um, try to contact the other FRG, get a plan in place. And you know, there's one time where we had, where I'm running a memorial service in the morning for one of our soldiers in our battalion. And that night, Major Vale, our battalion XO, gave me a call like two in the morning and said that, hey, there was an incident and like two were KIA and don't know about the other one. Um, don't know if he's KIA or if he's just a really bad WIA. Um, and having to go do the notifications for those immediately after having to do a memorial service for someone that I had served with in Kuwait and Iraq. And it just wears you down, you know, mentally and emotionally. So by the time that was up, I was, I was ready to, to, to hang up the spurs and, and head on and head on to greener pastures. 113 was an, an immensely capable unit. And, and this was just extremely difficult with, with major, Vermeesh, Major Boston, yep. Major Bale, yep. Lieutenant Colonel Wesley, before him was Lieutenant Colonel Sherman. Very, very competent Italian, very, very capable leader. But you you have soldiers, very young and some older, who are in this whipsaw 
of life where you experience more war in a year than you ever thought you would. And then you experience more life in that nine month transition, getting ready to go back out the door. And it seems like it's all like concentrated. It's compressed and you get soldiers who are experiencing 10 months worth of life in a month because they're trying to, to get all these experiences that they want done before they go back to Iraq again. And you see that whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, you can see them kind of stressed because of that. Absolutely. It just, it, it was, it wasn't a great time. And then we often tell the stories of the, the people forward, but not often, not often do we tell the stories of the people in the rear who are reacting to not only what's going on forward in Iraq, but also reacting to the impacts of those actions on the families and the soldiers we have to send back to the States. Yeah, it's it's really a thankless job. And knowing that I wanted to be there forward so bad, but also knowing that I had to be there you know, in the rear. And it really is just just a thankless job that knowing that, hey, everybody gets back and everybody thought that, hey, you're just hanging out, working nine to five, you know, eating McDonald's, getting fat and happy and not realizing you know, what went into doing this. And there was just so much of you was given. And to the point of that, in order to do this, I had to bring back um, First Sergeant Johnson. Uh, you probably you remember him from um, he was the first sergeant for our, our headquarters uh, company in, in 113. He had retired. He had put in his papers. He was on terminal leave and realized that, hey, he's the only guy that I trust to you know, help me out through this time, um, being rear detachment. And so I called him up. And, and of course, we had our you know, bit of friction when we were in, we're in Iraq because he's set in his ways. I was set in my ways. Um, but fortunately, he, he answered the call and you know, withdrew his paperwork and you know, helped me out for, for that uh, year plus and then again later retired. But yeah, like that couldn't have done it without the NCOs. And then and, and just... Within more context, like the civilians that were added to the system um, to posts was after this fact. Uh, the lessons learned from Fort Riley, the lessons learned from Fort Stewart and Fort Bragg, where you needed this additional civilian assistance. We were uh, two bastard brigades, 1st Brigade, 1 ID, and 3rd Brigade, 1 AD, with a 25th Infantry, not 25th, 24th Infantry Division, which was a National Guard training division over the top. <laughs> and yep. like... Who, who was taking care of whom? And it was very, very difficult structure. And again, you're that rear detachment commander who probably felt at some times like you're on an island and all you've got is First Sergeant Johnson. Yeah, like we're on an island and like that when notifications happen, yeah, we go up to the post headquarters and I'd be briefing either the garrison commander or the commanding general about like, hey, this is the battle plan, this is what we're doing uh, and this is what we're at on there. So it's just weird having this weird leap all the way up from like, hey, where I'm at a battalion to 24th Infantry um, Division, like reporting to them on kind of the status of some of these things. But you're right in terms of like the the support systems. They just weren't there. And it, it was not to go too deep into this, but there was definitely a stigma associated with um, going to go see the mental health folks. Uh, like No doubt about that. That was unfortunately a bit of a luxury that I did have as an officer staying in the rear that, hey, I don't have a meeting right now. Just told my first sergeant, hey, I'm going to be gone for an hour. And I go see a mental health professional because I, I wasn't right. And, 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 I'm, and I still struggle. Um, but it, it was just one of those things that, yeah, this, this just isn't right. It's not fair that, hey, if somebody wants to see a counselor, it's stigmatized. Uh, but 
like, hey, because I was a commanding officer and I recognize that I have a problem, I can kind of sneak away and go do this. And but but fortunately that the stigma is going away um, and folks can get the help that they need. So you you start coming up on your um, your obligation uh, from West Point, the decision to transition out of the military. Yeah. So I when I was in Iraq, like I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being with the people, enjoyed my true my, my troop leading time but like being back in garrison and in those situations like yep five i have to go i studied economics computer science uh when i was at the academy i had always loved computer science uh when i was in high school i had you know back then it was a lot harder to to, to learn how to program i had saved up money from working at mcdonald's to buy a pascal uh compiler so i can have on a, on a ibm pc clone so i can learn away from from high school get better at programming. And you know, fortunately, I was able to like validate some classes, uh, the computer science class, because of that. I also loved economics uh, and just this idea of, I think, because just this idea of not growing up with money and then knowing that, hey, you can make money on Wall Street. Like That's just another way of becoming versus being a doctor or or a lawyer. And since I couldn't be an astronaut, like, well, I guess I can go work on Wall Street if I had economics degrees. And my last name being Ackroyd and growing up in the 80s and trading places with Dan Ackroyd. That was such a big thing. Um, and seeing that scene at the very end, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. And But I don't know what to do. Uh, like, how do you go do that? I hear things about wealth managers and financial advisors and traders and research analysts, investment bankers. And like, it's, it's all just jargon to me. So LinkedIn was barely a thing at that time. So, but D was... Uh, the Internet Service Academy research uh, or uh, networking database and reached out to some folks that were working at Wachovia, Goldman Sachs, all that good stuff, and got on calls with them. And they kind of pointed me the way and said, hey, go to business school and you'll don't worry about it. Just you'll learn. We'll talk you through like what these different jobs do. Uh, But ultimately, just go to business school, talk to people, you'll figure it out. That is, again, another luxury that like being the rear D did help with is that, you know, I had a little bit of time to, to study for the GMAT and get those applications in. Um, and also being in that weird situation where, hey, I'm probably one of the first-ish people leaving the military with this combat experience, really weird, unique uh, life experience. Like I can probably write a really compelling essay uh, to get into business school. So did that. And got out, went to North Carolina, uh, UNC uh, for business school. Uh, for personal reasons, I was kind of like, had to go between either Duke or UNC and people were really collegial at UNC plus. Had uh, like ran into uh, Hank Newton, who like, I forgot how I knew him or ran into him at the academy, but like he was a class ahead of me or had a, ahead of us at the academy and also a class ahead uh, at business school. And Parker Knight was also there. Uh, so it just seemed like, ah, oh, this is UNC's home. Uh, we'll go to UNC. So went there and with the intent of going to go work on Wall Street. Interned for Goldman Sachs. Uh, at the same time, like the, the first year, I had these ideas of, okay, well, how do you make money? And when when I was at the academy, I, I had been doing some day trading early on when I was like a sophomore uh, and early junior. When I got the Cal loan, boom, I started trading with that. Now, you know, with the, the 24,000, that enabled me to be a pattern day trader so I can do, you know, more damage, but that damage was bad. So I ended up losing quite a bit uh, with the market crash too, because like, hey, doing day trading, not doing too bad. But then I left it all in tech stocks, which had done well before. Whenever it went to, I forgot what it was, like CTLT or something over the summer, it came back, boom, South Park style, and it's gone. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so so there went like most of my cow loan over the summer and pretty pissed about that. And it's like realizing that, okay, well, maybe I need to do something else. And so that's where like on the side, um, like when I was in, in Kuwait, ordered some books, had some like statistics books uh, delivered to me, was reading through all those things and just slowly like coming up with ideas. And over time, I came up with some trading ideas um, that use data and math and programming to be able to predict relative price movements. I met up with somebody who was a former uh, head trader from Goldman Sachs who had quit trading to go sail around the world for three years, do a full circumnavigation. He was crazy. Um, and he ended up being my business partner. He knew a whole bunch of rich people. So we raised institutional capital while we we're at business school and launched a proprietary trading firm. Uh, from the basement of our business school. We rented an office space from there. Um, so, it was, so it was one of the things like, hey, I'm going to business school. Maybe you go get a real job. I'm interned for Goldman Sachs. They gave me an offer and I can go do that or I can you know, make money for myself um, on the side. So I had a couple things going uh, immediately getting out, out of the military. How did that go? Not good. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it, 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 it was good because I had thought that, okay, well, if this fails, somebody will hire me because clearly done a little bit of sales. I've done the research. I'm portfolio managing. I'm doing the back office that I can get a job on Wall Street. Somebody will hire me. Went to West Point, been in combat, NBA, Goldman intern. Like now I'm awesome. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm awesome. I, I, I can go out there and go get a job anywhere if this fails. The, the problem is that this was, I graduated business school in May, 2008. And in September 2008, uh, Lehman Brothers failed. And then the entire world started collapsing uh, from a financial services perspective. We didn't really lose money because we traded primarily equity long short. And for the year, we were still up for the year. The problem was that we traded very high speed. So if you have everybody scared out of their minds, we lost like, you know, people lost 40%. You know, the professional traders lost like 30, 40%. Uh, of their book in October of 2008. Nobody wants to trade anymore. They're just done for the year. They give up. So liquidity dried up, made it really hard to make money, which means that, like, hey, if I'm collecting a percentage of the profits from my trading, if there's nobody trading, then I can't make profits. If I can't make profits, I don't have a paycheck to put food on the table. Um, so it's like, okay, well, I can last for a little while. And then the little while lasted several months. And you know, over time, begin to realize, like, shoot, I'm having to, having to sell my Xbox, my exercise bike. Uh, <laughs> I had to sell my, my, I'm serious, like, I had to sell my fish, my, my marine and coral fish tank. Like, it got bad. Sold my TVs. Um, and thank God for my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. Like, <laughs> like she really supported us um, just to be able to stay afloat. And she just trusted me every step of the way. Well, I probably shouldn't have been trusted um, just because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and it was just hard as hell to get a job um, because like everything evaporated. And I you know, also found out that most of the people from our cohort at Goldman, they ended up getting their offers pulled anyway. Um, so even if I went to go work on Wall Street right out of business school, probably would have lost my job anyway. So it's, it's kind of like a very similar situation to, to, to like the tech market right now. And just was in a low spot thinking like, what was all this for? Like, why did I just suffer through all this for for nothing. And so it was a bit of a pity party. Um, but then wife said, Hey, you're from San Antonio. Why don't you apply for USA? They're like, okay, well maybe I'll do that. The plan was just to get out of our, break our lease out of our apartment and then move back home. 
uh, move back in with the parents. So we put all our stuff in pods and just hopefully I can go get a job. Maybe I'll, again, maybe I'll flip burgers or do something. I'll, I'll figure something out. But fortunately, between the time, like we closed out our apartment until the time we showed up in San Antonio, USA had made me an offer and ended up there, fortunately. So that was a, a, a good stroke of luck uh, that I had there and, and things ended up turning around. How did you translate some of the financial investment that you were doing um, in your own company and your experience with Goldman Sachs? How did you translate that to what you were doing for USAA? So what I pitched to them was that, hey, I'm not doing anything crazy proprietary or unique. You know, from a grand scheme of executing the business, yes, it's proprietary. But I'm taking data, you know, applying math to it, and then writing code to then automate this and doing this on a daily basis. Could you use this for something else? And like they were hiring for some marketing, called like a marketing analyst, so eventually reclassed a data scientist. So what they wanted to do, they were pretty forward thinking uh, for like a big Fortune 100 company. That they said, hey, we have all of our companies siloed. We have auto insurance. We have our own set of reps, customer service reps. We have our own teams, our own policy folks. Live, living, breathing auto insurance. Same thing with car or uh, for homeowners insurance, for life insurance, for bank, for mutual funds. It's all different people, completely siloed organizations. This is bad for customer experience because we have people that have been with USAA for 50 years, like decades. That's what makes USAA great. Uh, is is the customer, the member, and they had the foresight before I got there to say, hey, well, why don't we just bring some some weirdos <laughs> that are just good at like <laughs> math and data and stuff and like just let them kick the tires on the, on all this data. Like we'll put all this data from like these mainframe computers, we'll put it in one database and let them try to figure stuff out. Um, like maybe they'll just be able to predict things. And that's what they brought me on to do. It's like, hey, just build some models to predict things. And it's like, okay, I, I could do that. Um, it's kind of what I did with the stocks, but like, how about I predict a model for the likelihood for someone to lapse from their auto insurance policy or not renew their auto insurance policy or uh, be able to get a credit card? And given that they get a credit card, are they a revolver or a transactor? And at what balance? And like, so you start building all these models and it's like, okay, well, let's put together a lifetime value model. That's the thing. Um, and then it got to a point where it's just like, okay, well, this is some really cool stuff that we're doing. And we could do this on behalf of the member where instead of just saying that, well, your FICO score isn't all that great, so we're not giving you that mortgage. Well, maybe because you've been such a great customer for all these years on the auto insurance side, maybe we'll tilt in your favor a little bit because of this relationship. We'll call it relationship underwriting. So we'll do that. And then like over time, recognize that this is fun, but I want to do more of the trying to figure out how to tie like a customer outcome with the science model, not necessarily just build the science model like I had been. And that got me into product management, which again was called something else at the time. Um, but then we really know, hey, this is product management where it's, okay, how do we think about following up with a lead? And because customers or members from USAA, they'd, you know, they'd apply for a credit card. And if they didn't close out and you know, close the deal on that, like we never reach out to them. That was that. So like USA never followed up on any customer leads. So like, how do you do this? If a, if a member calls in, should we be able to auto route them? Maybe they were on their, on the website before and looking at a certain product. Maybe we should ask them if this is the product that they're calling about and like stuff right now that's like, Oh yeah, that's what you do. That, that's, that's just digital, digital processes. Again, back in 2009, 2010, this was 
at least for us, revolutionary. And that was a great opportunity for me where I was just given a lot of runway to say, here's data, here's some customer problems, or maybe we don't know the customer problems, go find the customer problems and figure out how we can apply technology for this. And having the ability to stand, try something out, fall fall down, and then pick yourself back up over and over again really helped me, you know, going from there to Disney, to Amazon, and then to where I'm at today. How did that culture in USAA, um, how did you earn trust to make these systemic changes in that organization and, and iterate and fail and iterate and fail and finally demonstrate, here's where we're moving forward, here's where I'm adding value to the company? How did that go? How did you get the trust that someone was willing to, to bet on, on, on young Mike? That, that was really hard um, at the time. I think there was a couple things. One is having that West Point background and being ex-Army because there weren't a lot of VPs, executive directors, et cetera, that were military grads. Of course, you have the CEO, you know, Joe Robles at the time and the his direct reports on the, the executive council. Of course, a lot of them were ex-generals, but down at the real executive level, not a lot. So I did have a little bit of that credibility right there just because West Point uh, combat vet, they're going to give me the, the benefit of the doubt that I know the member better than anybody else. So it comes down to knowing the customer. Then from there, it's really having the data and working with people to be able to say, hey, peer review me. Does this make sense? And before you go out there and do the road shows with everything that you got to go out there, talk with people that are smarter than you, make sure that they can poke holes in it and any holes that are there, um, make sure you can address them or understand that they're acceptable. Separate from there, also be open to the, the roadshows. Go out there, talk about it, talk about potential applications, which I think really helped me at the time saying that, hey, I don't have a solution for all these things, but here's like the theoretical state of the world where we could go. We could potentially use it to, to do this. And one of the things we did was at the time, because of the financial crisis, that we had a lot of customers who were defaulting, that they couldn't pay their bills. And one of the programs we wanted to do um, called it FIT, Financial Improvement Team, I think. And it was like, hey, going out and telling customers that, hey, we understand you're in a tough situation. Don't worry about paying off. We're going to not pay. We're not going to charge you any interest on your credit card or your auto loan. We're just going to take care of you right now. We recognize you're in a tough spot. We know that you'll get us back later on. And really working with executives that had like some ideas like that and saying, hey, do you think my model would be able to kind of identify who those really great target customers would be for this program? It's so like, yeah, like I can do that, do some work on the side to then be able to to support them, to be able to then get these pilot initiatives off the ground. And you know, seeing that going and later on hearing the feedback with that program, for example, that, hey, not only did that work and really increase customer satisfaction, but you we found out that customers would stop paying on other companies' <laughs> loans and they pay on our credit cards first because we were so nice to them. So they didn't want to impact the relationship. So it's just kind of doing things for folks, peer reviews, having that West Point background, and but still doing the work really helped. But it, it still wasn't easy. It, it was a grind over you know, my entire five, six years there, just still slowly evolving the culture as best I could. The transition to Disney after building that trust and, and, and having success at USAA, talk me through that transition. That again was, was really hard because I had built what I thought was a pretty good brand there uh, at the company. When I left, I was I've been the chief of staff to to the president of one of the companies and it worked really well with him. But he retired uh, to go uh, be on the board of directors of uh, some other companies. And 
going to Disney, seeing like, oh, shoot, the, the organization structure differently. You have product kind of all in one organization. You have tech in one org. You have science in others. And these scientists are brilliant. Um, you know, not to knock anybody that, that work with the USA, but like PhDs from MIT, so fast. Like my, my peer, um, McKay, like he busts my chops all the time. Like, like he was, like he probably should have been an ex-army officer as well, <laughs> just how much he uh, busted my chops. But just really smart, talented people and trying to get up to speed as fast as possible, not wanting to disappoint them. But at the same point in time, knowing the product, knowing the customer. And that's really what it boils down to because what I worked on was really about, you know, Disney is about magic. And you know, my job was to help finance or fund the magic, where it's really trying to find pricing opportunities to uh, increase uh, room night rates for Walt Disney World Resort hotels or for the cruise line. And it really helps being able to go in, walk around resorts, understand what the customer is going to think about these price changes. Does this make sense? Why are certain things are the way they are? Um, like you know, One example that, that we always like to give is that, hey, our science models, we predicted that, hey, a lot of people prefer this category of room versus this other one. Well, well why? It doesn't make any sense. But then you start reading uh, the Disney bulletin boards uh, where people kind of share travel tips and people are recommending, no, stay in this one room type because it's got a better view of XYZ. It's got a better access to uh, the cafeteria or to the buses. And then you actually go walk the grounds, uh, just kind of just like what you do in the army, go, go, go do a train walk and go out there, walk the grounds and say, yep, this makes sense. I'm okay with this. Now I can go with confidence to senior executives and say, yes, our science model did this. And this is why we believe this science prediction is correct. And if this prediction is correct, we believe these other you know, 55 predictions are correct as well. So the, qu the question here that I have is, is for Disney, did they have a similar moment that USAA did where they were at an inflection point um, with USAA? It was, it was the, the recession and trying to take care of the debt load that some of their uh, customers had and trying to help them through that, that, that difficult struggle. Was Disney in a similar mode in 2014, 2017, where they were looking to basically get out of neutral and start moving forward? And, and that's where your ideas to change and adapt were more, more receptive? So it was, a, it was a unique situation where that I, I think they're just kind of open to like, well, we, we, we've done this the same way over so many years. Um, like there's got to be a better way of doing it. Uh, so I think that that's where they were receptive to doing this uh, initially in the science team before I had gotten on the ground. They had already made some initial headway on you know, some of these models. Uh, so at least the appetite was there. This was a time frame where um, Bob Iger was still in charge. The company was expanding uh, big into Shanghai. They were putting um, you know big new park over there. So there's a lot of focus uh, on that area. And at the same time, there was just... There was there was an appetite to figure out like okay well what would it look like if we were to do kind of more dynamic pricing across the board so instead of just saying that well we change the rates for our hotels one time a year but the the prices for any given day could vary or like hey no matter what you do you walk into the magic kingdom if you buy a one day ticket you're paying 120 dollars if you're buying a two plus day ticket you're paying you know 110 dollars per day kind of a graduated down to Hey, if you're coming on Memorial Day, it's $140. If you come over Christmas, it's $175. But in order to do that, you need to have like a specific reservation system. So part of what we were doing, I think, opened up the idea that some things like that were possible. 
And I did put together some decks um, before I left on you know, what could that possibly look like. Um, but I know that you know, the team did some great things and took that and ran with that. But of course, I, I think honestly now, if you look at Disney, if you see particularly parks and resorts, uh, like anything that's being reported right now is that, hey, the, the pricing has gone a little bit crazy, uh, that they're charging for just about everything. Uh, so that's kind of like the, the other side. So there's probably a situation right now where they were just thinking about, hey, how do we do this? How do we optimize? And perhaps that, you know, over the course of the last, you know, seven years or so, eight years, that maybe there's been an over-optimization uh, on pricing and, you know, how they think about products, which has led to a little bit of customer pushback. So there, people were receptive at the time. It's always that that question of uh, what data do you look at and what which one should be ranked the highest? And so when you're looking at the customer, uh, obviously you don't want a park that's so full that people are waiting in line for 30 hours. Uh, but the reverse is, is you don't want to pr- create a price point that's unaffordable. Um, and so to, to find that right size, getting the right data and getting the right feedback me- mechanism, how did you manage that? Yeah, like so that is a, a big challenge because part of it is that you you have to recognize that Disney's a premium product. So giving discounts on a premium product is, is kind of frowned upon. So if you are always in a state of raising price, then at some point in time, that it will definitely become unaffordable for people. Um, so that's one thing you need to be cognizant of. But then also you need to think about the holistic value of the situation. People come in and they're not just staying at a hotel. Uh, they're coming in, they're buying park tickets, they're buying food, they're buying merchandise. And you know, perhaps that if they don't get that great hotel experience, that maybe they're going to, and maybe it's too costly, maybe they'll spend less elsewhere that will hurt other uh, divisions within the, within the company. Maybe it's not accretive, maybe there is some dilution factor. And we, we model that uh, to be to be thinking about those things. Separate from there, there's also just the right size. And this is a little bit more with the cruise aspect because when you do a cruise, of course, there's a lot of things associated with, um, there, there's regulations, uh, you need life rafts, things like that to be able to get off the, the ship in, in a, an in appropriate manner, in an orderly manner. But also you need to think about that you don't want to be on a cruise ship that has like 30, 30% of its capacity. It will just feel dead. It just won't feel right. However, 95% is probably too crowded. There's that happy medium of like, okay, maybe it's 80 to 85% that feels good. Like it's comfortable, but not you know, a little crowded, but not too crowded. It's the same thing with the parks. It's the same thing with the hotels. So you also have to think about like kind of competitors that if the competitors have 85% occupancy rates, you can't have 75% because then it looks like that nobody wants to stay at Disney from a perception, a brand perception. But if you're at 82% capacity and everybody else is at 78, then it feels good for, for everyone. The transition uh, from Disney to Amazon. Talk me through the change in culture and the change in what they, they asked you to do when you came over to Amazon. Yeah, the, the change in culture with Amazon is that you get very, very hands-on as as a product manager, you even up to, to senior leadership. Where at Disney, it got to the point where like, hey, I'm just managing a large team. I have PMs, PM analysts. I have a whole bunch of uh, engineers and scientists that are dotted line reporting to me or directly reporting to me. And like, there's people to build Tableau dashboards if I need Tableau dashboards built or to write SQL queries if I need something written, if I need data pulled. Like, hey, I'm, I'm out of that. I'm in pure leadership you know, management. When you get to Amazon, like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, the, build your own reports. 
yeah, write your own queries. And I remember like even going through the interview, the interview is like, okay, like I'm getting through my technical screen uh, up in Seattle. And it's like, yeah, okay. So you're designing this machine learning software, um, you know, walk me through the system design of it. And I'm thinking like, shit, I haven't done this in years. And it's like, oh yeah, by the way, write the SQL query that you'd use to be able to identify um, like what the target customer audience would be and assume these are the particular tables in the fields. And like, I want to see a, this type of join. Like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so it's just really trying yeah. to stumble through that. But you have to do that. And it's like, hey, you are expected to to be the subject matter expert in all things your product. And like, that's a great thing. So yes, that you can rely on you know, designers to go out there and help you craft good design. But guess what? Like, you should be the first one to be crafting a Figma diagram or some type of wireframe before you hand it over to to design because you need to have ideas for them. Uh, and it just, so from the BI side, from the design side, from the engineering side, from the science side, like, hey, I had to come with my ideas. The other thing that was, again, challenging is that, again, just the, the skill and the talent of these people, it just throughout my entire career, from West Point, business school, <laughs> through USA, like all these places, just really smart people. And like, remember like my boss asking me like, hey, you know, this is our problem. Like, what do you think we should do? And I'd rattle off, I probably ran off like a dozen different ideas. He's like, done it doesn't work, tried it, doing that already. And just, and then by the time I got to my end of my list, like, well, I guess I'm not adding value to you. <laughs> so it's like, you just feel really, really, really low. Um, and like that first year, it's like, am I going to get cut? Um, but then you like, so you just double down, work hard, become a master of your domain. And then from there, you realize like, okay, that yes, now I'm starting to add value, but it does take it takes a year because Amazon's such a big place. There's so many different systems. There's so many different tools that people have built over the you know, 25 years or so. Uh, really smart people have built it uh, that get to this place where, yeah, as a PM, once you know the ecosystem that is Amazon, you can spin up things far faster than you can at any other company, at least that I've worked at. Like You probably could do this at Google and Meta and some other places and, and that I've never worked at. But yeah, you could just do things so fast, get it out and pilot, get it in front of customers, get their feedback, either from a quantitative or a qualitative perspective. And and then from there, if it looks good, present it to executives and you iterate. So that that team of teams, as you've grown from, from West Point um, to Fort Riley, Kansas, and, and going to Iraq, um, to USAA, then Disney, now then Amazon, that constantly sharpening and working uh, to improve the team together. How's that gone um, for you? Has that, I mean, you can hear it in your voice. Is, is that, that fire still there every morning to, to go out and to achieve and, and accomplish the next task? Yeah, I, I, I think for me is that throughout all of this right here, I think you hear the phrase like you make your own luck. And for me, it really rings true because I felt like such a failure when coming out of the army, had my investment fund, and it just went to zero. And it's like, well, why did I spend all that time in high school programming, time at the academy learning economics, you know, blowing through my Cal loan, spending time and wasting my internship and like opportunities and other opportunities at business school to do this? Like, well, because I did that and that enabled me to then kind of pivot a little bit to get good at these other things and really enjoy something and learn more. And then just to pivot slightly. And now where I'm back right now, as a as an executive at you know series c uh, international startup backed by tiger global and like i would not have been here had i not grinded it out having that grit which again it's really 
honed in at West Point that that's where I learned this because had I just said like, eh, these people are smarter than me, not going to get it. They, they can swim better than me. There's no point that to, to even attempt this, to not try to learn at least something. Then had I given up, like that same mentality would have just been in me versus like, okay, well, yeah, I may not be the best at this, but at least I can grind it out and keep going forward. And really, I think you're trying to still like over time breaking the habit uh, that I had at West Point of the spec and dump where it's like, okay, I'm just doing this just to get through. Like, no, learn for the sake of learning uh, and just try to like, may not know where it will take you, but just keep doing stuff, something and keep moving forward. Now, making your own luck. How do you do that um, in all these? I mean, these are not bad companies. It's not like you went to a company that, that was failing and then you turn it around. But like you made your luck with selling USAA to change processes and uh, adapt policies across their entire organization. You went to Disney. And again, these are well-established companies. How do you make your own luck and sell yourself in these? What What's the, the secret sauce? I think that like, well, one, like I cannot take credit for all of this because again, I was surrounded by a lot of great people, a lot of executive supporting, you know, some of them already kind of seeded these ideas. And it was really about just say hey, executing, expanding and taking it forward to the next level. So have to give credit where credit is due. At the same point in time, it's still, it's very much like the, I don't know, it's like the army is that it, it's a people game that you need to understand what, what folks are good at. And hopefully I've been you know a pretty decent leader um, and, and peer across these different organizations and see that I'm willing to put in the work because one of the things that I've always kind of leaned on, like, okay, well, maybe I'm not the smartest guy and just intuitively get it because I've crossed many of those people uh, throughout my career. But one thing in the army that always works is be willing to roll up your sleeves and do the job. We're like one of the first times you screwed up with a tank and we needed to, we broke track, needed to get it back online and asking the soldiers, Hey, teach me how to help you. And, they didn't want to. It's like, yeah, you're just going to slow things down. And it's like, well, this is going to happen again. At least teach me how to do this. Get, let me get my hands dirty. And just that constant mentality of wanting to get my hands dirty and trying to dive deep in the data, try to understand where those anomalies are, where the kind of the arbitrage opportunities may, may lie. Then from there, just subtly you know, pitch that to folks, see if this makes sense to them, and then just slowly build a, a coalition of the willing uh, to go forth and say, hey, can we build something to go tackle this? And so I think it really does boil down to that, yeah, it's not about just having some brilliant idea that we're going to go change the world. It's about like, I think that there's an opportunity here. I'm going to actually do a little bit of the work myself and put pen to paper, get the data. And then from there, like, okay, well, now that I have this opportunity identified, what's the strategy look like? What's the product potentially look like? And then from there, like, what's the, the ROI, the financials that, you know, executives would be most interested in? That's awesome. Uh, it's really cool to hear your story. Um, as we close this up, any parting words for the class? <sighs> cooperate and graduate through life. Um, <laughs> that, that I think that the <laughs> cooperate and graduate is like probably like the, what we all heard, but I think from there is through life. Uh, because folks that, that I ran into, like I mentioned, all the folks I ran into in Baghdad, but then even then, like I have a list right here, just so I wouldn't forget, like at USAA, ran into Andy Hatman, Greg Bach, worked with both of them. Megan McNulty was a zero zero grad. She was my boss for a bit. Uh, Rob Braggs was a 94 grad, was my boss for a bit. At Disney, Joe Becker, like had a number of good conversations with him. He's our classmate and he's a, you know, he's a super executive at Disney, like a uh, senior VP or something. And uh, AJ Spencer, like I, I ran into AJ. Um, he's an executive at Disney. My wife and I ran into him 
um, about a month or so ago at, at an event. And it's like, it's random. It's like, hey, you look familiar. And come to find out, he lives on my street. Like, we live down the street from each other. Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> like, that, like, what kind of coincidence or luck is involved with that? And come to find out also, like, Brian uh, Bowdish, like, lives a neighborhood over from us. And, like, Yosef Shim was, you know, like, my, my B-Squad roommate. And he's an executive at Amazon. And, like, you know, crushing it over there, you know, running, like, you know, primary in Europe or something like that. And, like, so... Our classmates are doing some really kick-ass things, both in the military and uh, in their career. But broadly speaking, we're still rare, fairly young folks. So let's still you know, keep graduating or cooperating, graduating through life. Um, that's probably my, my biggest pitch. I think that's a, a great point to end on. And one of the things that I didn't, even in, until we talked today, I didn't realize uh, how t- tangentially we were uh, working together uh, in the same battle space uh, at Fort Riley. I know. I, I didn't either. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> hey, uh, thank you very much, Mike, and you have a great day. You too. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Till duty is done. Indeed. Bye. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods, and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military, and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.